Welcome to Diseases in Dialogue. In this podcast, researchers from the Diseases of Modern Life project at the University of Oxford join experts from a range of fields to discuss some of the major questions surrounding the scientific, technological and medical developments that have defined the modern era. In this episode, we explore the central role which has long been attributed to digestion in the promotion of physical and mental well-being, from the 19th century to the present day. How do Victorians perceive the connection between the brain and the stomach? What does science tell us now? Why is digestive health so central to our understanding of who we are? Hello, I'm Dr. Emily Taylor-Brown, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher on the Diseases of Modern Life 19th Century Perspectives Project, based here at the University of Oxford. And my research, in a nutshell, asks, what did gut health mean to the Victorians? Hi, I'm Katrina Johnson. I recently finished my DPhil here at Oxford, uh, looking at the science of that gut feeling. So how bacteria living in our gut can affect the brain and behaviour. So I want to start with uh, an historical vignette. England, 1853. A human stomach writes an autobiography. And in it, it recounts its life, its encounters with food adulteration, tobacco, alcohol, love, and marriage. The book is universally well-reviewed and runs to 11 editions. It's even translated into French. So spoiler alert, It's not actually written by a stomach, but by writer and barrister Sidney Whitting. And it was originally published anonymously, but was hugely popular. And it was praised both for its writing style and for its scientific content. And I think this reflects a broader interest in the 19th century in gut health. So when I talk about what I do, um, that I look at digestive health in the 19th century, often people will say something along the lines of, or lack thereof. Um, And I think this is quite a popular misconception about the Victorians, that it's all going to be about dysentery and hunger and tapeworms. And this did make up the fabric of 19th century daily life. Um, But also there were much more complex discussions going on about public health and private hygiene and anxieties about food and the body and identity. And whether it's advice from the doctor or adverts for dietetic bread or Oliver Twist's iconic please for more, it was actually really difficult for the Victorians to get away from discussions of food and diet. And their dietetic knowledge came from a diverse range of different sources. So, of course, from the doctor, but also from advice columns in family and general interest periodicals, in domestic health manuals, which were often targeted at young wives and mothers, in novels and poems, but also in cookery books. So cookery books uh, dished out dietary advice alongside their recipes. And then finally, you have texts like Whitting's, which are sort of strange hybrid texts. So Whitting borrowed from an 18th century genre called the it narrative, in which the story would be voiced by everyday objects, like a teapot, for example. Um, But he also included knowledge from the developing um, field of experimental medicine. And in doing so, the story imaginatively plays out um, this central dialogue that governed medical thought um, in the early 19th century, the relationship between the stomach and the brain, or what we might now call the gut-brain axis. And it just really struck me as a way of looking at the body um, that perhaps resonates with the developing field of microbiome studies. 
Yeah, exactly. So um, now a lot of a lot of the science doesn't just look at the gut because we've known uh, we have uh, phrases in our language like things like that gut feeling and gutsy. Uh, but now we've realized that there are trillions um, of bacteria that live in our gut as well as uh, other microorganisms like viruses and fungi. And, and we call this collection of microorganisms the gut microbiome um, that call our gut home. And we're starting to now understand how the bacteria in our gut can affect our brain and behavior. It's really a bi-directional communication. So it's not just that our gut can potentially affect our brain, but also the other way around. So our mood and how we feel can also affect uh, the state of our gut and the bacteria in our gut. Yeah, that's really interesting that you talk about the bi-directionality because that is something that really comes to the fore in these medical texts. So in, so in Whitting's text, Memoirs of a Stomach, um, the main character, Mr. Stomach, talks about his relationship with Mr. Brain. Um, and he often talks about it um, in terms of this power dynamics. So he thinks that he's really in control. Um, and he speaks about the connection between the two of them as connected by a double set of electric wires. Um, so he's using uh, essentially a developing technology, the telegraph, to talk about this communication between the two of them. Uh, but it's always this contentious uh, communication in medical thought as well. The question is, uh, which one really is in control of the body? Is it the stomach or the brain? I mean, in microbiome studies now, is there a sense of it being a completely equal relationship or is science and consensus of one organ over the other? I think we still don't know the relative role of um, the effect of the brain on the gut and vice versa. Um, we know that actually the gut has 200 million neurons. And so a lot of people refer to it as the second brain and it can actually function independent of the brain, although it often communicates uh, a lot with the brain as well. Um, so we know that in particular stress can actually deplete the abundances of good bacteria in our gut and it can also change how our gut might function. So the motility of our gut or mucus secretion and everything that can change the environment in our gut. Um, and then in turn, there's studies now looking at how perhaps different types of bacteria may produce different chemicals or interact with our brain. Uh, one route is through the vagus nerve. So this is a nerve that communicates directly from our gut to our brain. And so a really interesting uh, condition that a lot of studies look at is irritable bowel syndrome or IBS because people not only suffer from gastrointestinal issues, but it's also often really comorbid with stress and anxiety. And so there was a, a study where they looked at people over time to try and untangle whether it's really the brain or the gut. And uh, they found that in a third of cases, people suffered from stress or anxiety prior to the onset of the gastrointestinal condition. Uh, but then in two thirds of cases, uh, they actually had the gut condition first and then this led to the onset of psychological symptoms. So it definitely is a two-way a two-way communication uh, system. That's really interesting uh, that the science is kind of bearing this out because this is, I mean, as you mentioned, the association between um, thinking and digesting or between um, our gut and the emotions is, is a really old one and it's really reflected in the way that we talk about these things. Um, and it's perhaps most familiar to us in the Western world um, from the humoral model of health. So this is, of course, uh, black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm, uh, and also the six non-naturals. So they are air, food and drink, sleep and wakefulness, exercise and rest, retention and the evacuation of waste, and the perturbation of the mind and the emotions. Um, and the idea of the humoral model of health is that we're always striving for balance. This kind of model just reoccurs throughout history in various different guises and is always recast in response to developing 
medical paradigm shifts. So in the 18th century, with the discovery of blood circulation, you then get this way of thinking about the body in terms of bodily hydraulics. Um, and then you move on to the nervous body with the development of 18th century neurology. So at the beginning of the 19th century, you get all this uh, interest in gastric health, which is enmeshed within this framework of the nervous body, which in turn is, is pulling on these kinds of metaphors about technology, which is, which is developing along the same time. So there's communicative technologies like the telegraph um, are being developed at the same time that people are thinking about these communications between the gut and the brain. So in the 19th century, uh, when these uh, scientists and medical writers are talking about gastrointestinal health or digestive health, the stomach emerges as this kind of key actant. But actually, the digestive system is, is much more kind of nebulous and fluid um, than we might initially think it is. The stomach is always spoken about in terms of how connected it is with the other organs in the body, particularly the brain, but also everything else in the body. So the stomach affects and is affected by literally everything else which I think is a really interesting um, way of thinking about the body. And it's particularly keyed into emotional health. So digestive health and emotional health really emerge as two kind of modes around which a lot of medical thought um, is happening. Well, today, uh, most of the focus of modern research is on uh, the intestinal tract and in particular, um, the microbes that live in it. Um, there's a little bit of research, but not that much that actually on the gastric microbiome, so the microbiome of the stomach. But there is more and more research looking at how kind of the, the microbiome can change through our gastrointestinal tract. So obviously the conditions change slightly as, as you go basically from the mouth to the other end. Um, but that's kind of a new a new area trying to understand what types of bacteria dominate in different places. And, and so uh, because, because the vast majority of our body's microbes live in our gut, that's been the focus. And like you say, uh, it overlaps so many fields, you know, neurobiology, immunology, genetics, almost everything you can think of. Um, so to a degree, I think it's also helpful to have a lot of understanding of the uh, you know, closely related disciplines to really see how it pieces together because it's, because it's so um, complex in terms of um, the communication between the gut and the brain. And in fact, we don't really know what the dominant force is. There are some studies that show that the vagus nerve is really important. So if the vagus nerve is damaged, then uh, bacteria in the gut aren't able to affect the brain and behavior. Uh, but bacteria in our gut can actually produce chemicals identical structure to our brain's own neurotransmitters so things like serotonin and dopamine uh, but the thing is at the moment we're not sure how relevant this is so whether the neurotransmitters just stay in our gut or whether they can um, communicate with the brain either either um, you know perhaps through the circulation or or through the uh, vagus nerve um, and one of the other key things um, we think might be involved now is the immune system so there's more and more evidence that the state of our immune system um, might affect the brain and behavior. So we know that our gut bacteria are really, really important for regulating our immune response. Now there's been a um, real increase um, recently in the number of people suffering from autoimmune disorders or eczema, asthma, and allergies. And um, there's quite a lot of thought in the field now that that might be because um, when you're young, it's really important to be colonized by bacteria to teach our bodies what kind of bacteria are okay and harmless and what bacteria we really need to respond to and fight a attack against. And so if we grow up in a world that's a bit sterilized and don't get dirty and play outside as much and all these kind of things, um, we're not exposed to bacteria enough to really teach our immune system how to develop and respond to uh, stimuli in the, in the correct way. Unfortunately, the 19th century has quite a lot to answer for this clean body problem. 
So we have the popularity of germ theory, of course, and the discovery of lots of different kinds of pathogenic microorganisms and the rise of immunology at the end of the century. So you get this model that emphasizes host and pathogen, self and other, um, us and them, if you like. And we now know it's much more complicated, immunologically speaking, but I think it was an attractive framework because it offered a relatively simple solution to a complex biological problem. So there's this book called Metaphors We Live By, by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And in this book, they essentially argue that the way in which we speak about the world literally affects how we experience it. So the kinds of metaphors we use in science affects how science is practiced. And I think this is really interesting because in the 19th century, medical writers and scientists use language that reflect the dominant ideologies and conditions of an industrializing society. So you often get the body is a machine, the body is a factory. And we can really see this in operation in Whitting's use of the telegraph analogy to talk about what we would now call the gut-brain axis. But it also crops up a lot in medicine, in medical texts, in medical treaties, in medical textbooks. So there's no kind of distinction between the use of metaphor in the 19th century. Um, other ways of thinking about the body in terms of the, the, the stomach and mind are things like the household, um, law firms, they talk about joint tenants. Uh, when they're starting to begin to think about bacteria, they start um, using these kinds of metaphors of joint shareholders and this kind of thing. And it really strikes me that it's very reliant on kind of urban geographies. And I think that's quite a d distinction from how microbiome studies now is starting to think about the body in these more ecological ways. Is that right to say? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, our microbiome is one of the most complex ecosystems you could study probably just as complex as say the rainforest but so many times uh smaller um and i think that's just uh what makes it hard also to perhaps portray to other people um this whole community of microorganisms in your gut and the thing about our the the ecosystem in our gut is that there are so many different species of bacteria and then within one species there's lots of different strains and one strain might have an effect that uh, that another strain um, has a different effect and then also there's competitive interactions between bacteria so bacteria might produce chemicals to kill other uh, bacteria or cooperative interactions between bacteria and then they have th their own crazy genetic mechanisms so they can give other bacteria some of their genetic code and so it just makes it a really really tricky and complex ecosystem to study um, although luckily now with a lot of developments in technology since Victorians that that is possible and um, particularly through um, uh, sequencing also some people in the field um, use a concept of superorganism um, although I think really that can be a bit uh, misleading because the idea of a superorganism is that we're not just human but we have all these uh, bacteria in us as well but the other kind of connotation of that is that all the bacteria are doing helpful things to us to make us kind of better than if we were just a human organism uh, but the thing is that you know the best word in this situation to use is uh, symbiotic which just means you're living with another uh, organism and it doesn't mean uh, for example uh, some some bacteria might be pathogenic and cause disease and some bacteria may be beneficial but they're both symbiotic in different ways because they're still living with us and I think that's the key thing because not all bacteria in our guts are going to uh, have the same interest as our own human selves in terms of evolution right some of them might might harm us but generally we think now that our gut microbiome is is beneficial for our health yeah I think it's really interesting kind of devaluing the human from this kind of 
way of thinking. So in even as early as the 1840s, there's this brilliant essay published which says that one of the biggest fallacies of humanity is the the idea that man has exclusive possession of his own body. Um, and in that respect, they're talking about microorganisms, they're also talking about tapeworms. Um, but it's written from the perspective that you don't have ownership over your body. And I think that re is a really interesting in terms of this idea that you're talking about that even the word good and ba bad bacteria kind of presupposes some kind of agency on the part of microbes, which is maybe not fair of them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are, there are obviously some bacteria that we know are, are harmful, like Clostridium difficile or Salmonella, um, but they're they're really they're really in the minority. And even actually, uh, um, a lot of healthy people have been found to have really low levels of Clostridium difficile. But as long as you're healthy and you have a, a gut that's teeming with bacteria, then it can largely keep the kind of any any really bad guys like Clostridium difficile in check. Um, but then that opens up a whole other can of worms, really, because this is the whole uh, thing with the microbiome field is that. Um, although research has been booming over the last decade, um, we, we still don't really know kind of what a healthy gut microbiome is like. We know there are specific types of bacteria that are generally associated with good health, a few that really produce anti-inflammatory uh, chemicals that are likely to benefit us. Uh, but um, one of the reasons why it's hard to pin down what, what a healthy microbiome is like is that because there's so much uh, diversity between us in the types of bacteria that live in our gut. So if you compared my uh, gut bacteria to yours, we'd probably only have in common roughly 20% of species. And and this kind of diversity is pretty is pretty amazing. Uh, in terms of the composition of our gut but then also if if you then look at what what our gut bacteria do so even if I have different gut bacteria from you uh, studies show that the actual functions they perform in the body are maintained. I think that's so interesting because that tension you've described uh, microbiome studies promises so much it has so much potential um, as a developing field of study um, and I think sometimes people think of it as being this kind of one pill cure, cures all, almost. Uh, what people really want you to tell them is what is a good microbiome? Which of course, as you've said, is that's not an easy question to answer and maybe not even an answer that's uh, even interesting or useful to us. And I think there's a kindred thing happening in the 19th century. You have this enhanced scientific interest in digestion. Um, so the classic case that some people might have heard of is the case of Alexis St. Martin. So Alexis St. Martin was a man who was shot in the stomach at close range. And he, the, the bullet tore a hole through, right through to his stomach, through his abdominal muscles and broke um, several ribs. Uh, and this is in the 1820s. Miraculously, against the odds, he survived and made a full recovery, apart from the fact that the hole never fully healed over. So he was now in this position of having what's called a gastric fistula. Um, so an American army surgeon called William Beaumont then decided to take this as an opportunity because what he had now was a window into the gut in a living and otherwise healthy human being. So before this, digestion, weirdly enough, was a theory because no one had seen it happening in a live human. So he did a series of experiments, very rudimentary experiments that involved essentially dipping bits of food on a piece of string through the perforation into the stomach and then charting how long it took to break down. So every hour or so he would pull out this string and then he would just chart down in his notebook how much he thought it was digested. Um, it wasn't particularly scientific, but what he did produce was all of these charts um, in which he had developed this language of digestibility. So veal takes two and a half hours, you know, uh, vegetables take an hour and a half, um, and it produces language of digestibility. And people started thinking about food, not in terms of 
their nutritional value, although this is happening at the same time you have the rise of the science of nutrition, but in terms of how easy it is to digest certain things. So amid these efforts to essentially quantify knowledge about the digesting body and to produce rules about diet, um, what really emerges is the fact that it's not the same in everybody and actually these rules don't really apply to everyone. So at the same time you have this effort to produce all these rules, you also have what is the early recognition of personalized medicine. And you have all these people writing into these periodicals with their own experiments in, in diet where they say, I gave up cheese for a week and this is what happened. I gave up dairy for a week and this is what happened. And there's this real interest in this kind of personal experimentation. And I think this is a really interesting tension the microbiome studies is also um, vying with, is this human desire to have a easy fix for something versus the huge complexity of the human organism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people think that, oh, if they can just take a pill and it will help improve their health, that that's so much easier. Um, but really, it, it often comes down to having, uh, having, having a healthy lifestyle and a healthy diet. And sometimes that's the easiest way to, to um, improve our bodies because we're using natural uh, resources that our bodies are used to absorbing nutrients from. Um, so um, the, the, the most evidence in terms of diet at the moment is the beneficial role that fiber plays in our guts. Um, so bacteria break down fiber and when they break down um, fiber, they uh, produce uh, short chain fatty acids. And these uh, specific fatty acids are actually well known for having anti-inflammatory properties. Um, so um, they can uh, play a beneficial role in uh, regulating our immune system. Um, and there's also some evidence that they can actually um, travel, some of them can actually travel into the brain and, and maybe have to have beneficial effects on the brain there. Um, and like you say, in terms of um, the, the kind of idea that started in the Victorian times of almost personalized nutrition, that's something that uh, people are just looking into in the moment in relation to the microbiome. Um, but it is a, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very new um, area and there isn't really uh, much to say. So one of the criticisms that's often leveled at modern society is that we're too clean. Um, we're misophobic, we're uh, scared of germs. And this is of course a, a hangover or a consequence of the germ theory um, of disease popularized in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, so we often kind of think of the 19th century as being uh, bringing in this fear of germs. But in fact, at the end of the 19th century, um, alongside this narrative of um, germs as harmful uh, and the development of um, immunology and theories of phagocytosis, you also have this notion of symbiosis, this idea that some bacteria are really beneficial and in fact, incredibly important for us to function as humans. And this is emblematized for the popular imagination, probably most famously in H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, published in 1898, in which Earth witnesses an invasion by the Martians. Um, and eventually the Martians are slain by the putrefactive bacteria um, that man, by the toll of a billion deaths, has bought his birthright to the earth, writes Wells. So there's a sense here, really early on, um, I think, uh, in 1898, that bacteria are also our allies, as it were, not just our enemies. Yeah, and I think that recently um, we might have lost lost that that kind of perspective slightly. 
Um, you know, we tend to grow up in a world, I think, now where, you know, most of the microbes we know are nasty and, uh, you know, we know maybe there's a few good ones. But really, the vast majority of microbes are harmless and, and uh, may even a lot of them actually be beneficial uh, to our health. Um, I'm actually working on a project at the moment, which is um, joint with uh, social sciences and humanities, trying to understand how we can also portray this uh, to the public. Um, and, and there is starting to be quite a few collaborations now between um, artists and scientists working on this to show oh you know we have this microbiome we have all these bacteria you know in terms of number of cells in our body roughly we're estimated to be half human and and half bacteria we even have our own kind of personal microbial cloud so it's not even that we have microbes uh, in our gut and on our skin but almost like in the sphere around our heads and on on our bodies um and they estimated that we release up to a million biological particles an hour and a lot of those are probably microbial um so i think it's just something to realize that you know we're animals we've evolved in a microbial world along with all the other animals and microbes are something that's actually integral to our health and largely not not something that we should worry about but I think it's also important not to give our microbes too much agency so we know that they might have some effect on our brain and you know maybe might be able to affect our mood a bit but they're a piece of a piece of the puzzle and it makes it really interesting to understand. The thing that that's kind of emerged out of this discussion seems to be that throughout history and different medical paradigm shifts we're always revisiting and trying to answer the same questions which are essentially uh, about what it means to be human in an increasingly modern world. So we might think uh, about our relationships with the natural world as one writer in the 19th century prophesies that the future of the human race, we will think of ourselves as a law firm, as like a law firm, as a homo and co with one main shareholder and numberless small ones. We have this whole system of systems that are all interacting. And I think that's what makes it really fun to work in as a scientist, but it's also what makes it very, very complex at the same time. But, you know, we, we don't have to understand everything and we can still, you know, hopefully have further advances in, in medicine because of our, our findings in this field. Well, on that note, um, I'd like to thank you very much for coming and chatting to me today. Thank you for having me. Well, and my microbes as well.